0: Hello, and welcome back to 15 Minutes of Fascism, a sadly topical podcast covering the global rise of the radical right. I'm Dr. Craig Johnson, and this week I'm talking to you about the Estado Novo, uh, which is a concept in Portuguese and Brazilian politics dealing with a particular form of governance that both of these countries experimented with in the early to mid 20th century. Now, both of these countries had governments that were called the Estado Novo, which translate to new state. Um, however, because they are somewhat distinct, you know, maybe we should be calling these uh, the Estados Novos, you know, the new states. I don't know. Uh, the fact is that these are related concepts, uh, especially in the Portuguese speaking world. Now, the Estado Novo is a corporatist system of governments and economy, uh, particularly in Portugal and Brazil in the early 20th century. It originated in Portugal under the dictatorship of a man named António de Oliveira Salazar, uh, who was the president of the Council of Ministers of Portugal from 1932 to 1968, uh, which is an extremely long tenure uh, for a political leader to have outside of a monarchical system. Now, the Estado Novo in Portugal had several key features. It was principally anti-democratic, or at least non-democratic. Uh, while this government is also called, in the Portuguese case, the Second Portuguese Republic, quote-unquote, uh, it is, in fact, an autocratic state uh, ruled by elites, by the military, by the church, that is, by the clergy in Portugal, and by intellectuals. The president of this new government, uh, Oliveira Salazar, was, in fact, himself a former professor who had turned into a politician uh, after some time as a sort of technocrat in a previous form of governance in Portugal, the First Portuguese Republic. Now, the Estado Novo emerged from a coup against this first Portuguese republic. It had only one political party, but that party wasn't supposed to mobilize anybody. Uh, It wasn't supposed to actually get anybody to come out into the streets. It wasn't supposed to get out the vote. It wasn't supposed to do anything like that. Instead, its purpose was to demobilize. Specifically, the one party in Portugal, the National Unity Party, was supposed to prevent people from organizing at all. This is entirely distinct from fascism. Uh, Fascism, classically at least in the Nazi and Italian case, is organized in terms of a mass political party whose purpose is to galvanize its supporters to be good fascists. You know, uh, the purpose of the Nazi party is to get people out in the streets, to get people to go out and vote when there were votes, uh, to get people to go out and mobilize and participate in uh, street violence when that was what the Nazis wanted people to do. Instead, the Estado Novo is about preventing this kind of popular democratic uprising. And by democratic, I don't mean like, you know, in that there are votes and elections and things. I mean that it involves the participation of the demos, like the, the people, you know, the, the people who live in a place. Uh, it is anti-democratic, even in this sense, corporatism. It is not about popular mobilization. That is the biggest and most important thing about the Estado Novo as compared to other extreme right-wing experiments in the 1930s. It is corporatist, as opposed to necessarily fascist, corporatism is a form of governance that is popular, especially among Catholic conservatives in the 19th century and early 20th century. And their intention was to govern society not by the votes of individuals or by representing individual interest groups through political parties, uh, but to represent groups that were sort of naturally occurring in the world. Right? The 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 idea is that uh, there are naturally occurring groups of people in modern society. For example, trade organizations. Uh, groups of teachers, students, soldiers, intellectuals, etc., uh, and that those groups of people are natural constituents of society, and that they should receive representation in uh, legislatures, as opposed to, uh, you know, groups of people who call themselves communists, or like that—that that, that people who belong to any particular neighborhood should be represented by the people who live in that neighborhood, stuff like that. Uh, So the Portuguese state had two chambers in their legislature, one that was a sort of normal republican system where you could only be a member of the national unity government, and the other one was a corporatist representative system uh, in which people represented these interest groups. Like I said, corporatism is not fascism, although many other fascist organizations espoused a version of corporatism in their description of how they thought that that their societies should be run. For example, the Spanish fascists, the Falange, espouse a version of corporatism in their own context. This particular, quote-unquote, third way, as many of the extreme right-wing experiments in Europe in the 1930s called themselves, you know, they were neither liberal democracy nor were they communism. Uh, So this particular third way declined uh, in Portugal, uh, as Portugal sought membership in the international community in the mid-20th century. Uh, Portugal was one of the first signatories to NATO. It was one of the first members of some of the big European uh, economic knitting together treaties, uh, the things that would eventually become the European Union. This is all because, A, because Portugal under Salazar was trying to uh, engage in a hyper and very quick form of economic development, and also because the Estado de Novo, like all right-wing political movements, was virulently opposed to communism and to the left in general. And so since the purpose of NATO and even these economic treaties in Europe was to galvanize Europeans and to organize them in opposition to the possibility and um, the power of the Soviet Union, that is why Portugal participated so much. Uh, So rather than engaging in this corporatist, sort of not exactly capitalist form of modern civilization that they were trying to imagine, instead, Portugal becomes a good member of the normal, liberal, international community, with the exception, of course, that it is not a republic at all, not a democracy at all, until the mid-70s. And that brings us to the third big pillar of the Estado Novo in Portugal. It was a colonialist regime. Portugal waged significant wars throughout the 20th century in order to main hold on its colonial possessions in India, in what would eventually become Indonesia, and especially in Africa, where its two biggest colonial possessions, Angola and Mozambique, were the last major African colonies to be decolonized in the world, uh, with the exception of some Spanish enclaves that remain in Spanish hands in northern Africa. The eventual breakup of the Estado Novo in the mid-1970s essentially coincides with the end of the Portuguese empire and with the end of the Portuguese colonial regime in these places. This means that because Portugal was, by some counts, the first European country to create a colonial system in Africa, it was both the earliest African colonizer of the Europeans and the last African colonizer of the Europeans, at least uh, when it comes to modern forms of colonization. And of course, at the foundation of all of this, in the case of the Estado Novo in Portugal, is extreme right-wing Catholicism. Which underpins both the corporatist message uh, that society is organized in this sort of "quote-unquote" organic or natural way, as opposed to a democratic way. Uh, the opposition to representative democracy, which is a major part of 19th century conservative Catholicism, you know, lingering on into the early and mid 20th century in Portugal, and of course, the colonial mission of Portugal was supposedly one of civilization. You know, trying to bring Christendom to the peoples of Africa. That's exactly the same motivation that the Portuguese monarchs might have been able to justify or at least attempt to justify their atrocities uh, in the early modern period, you know, in the 15, 16, and 1700s. Moving on to Brazil, uh, we have another thing called the Estado de Novo, same name but a different state, uh, in this case instituted by a man named Getulio Vargas, who is, prior to Lula, the most Popular and successful of all Brazilian politicians, although this is a little bit complicated. So, in the early 20th century, talking in the 1920s, Chutulio Vargas is a powerful politician from the southern region of Brazil. Uh, He is the leader of a series of political oppositions in Brazil uh, in the 1920s, and in 1930, he is granted power by a military government uh, to ensure the legitimacy of their new coup. The background is that there was a sort of popular leftist revolt led by low-level military leaders uh, called the Tenentes Rebellion. Uh, These are lieutenants in the military in Brazil. Vargas rules in the stead of the military, and they create a provisional constitution and a provisional government that he is the president of. And then in 1937, he pulls the rug out from everybody and says that he's going to suspend this new constitution that he was a part of drafting uh, in order to lead Brazil as a quasi-dictator. And what does he call his new government? Well, he calls it the Estado Novo. This Estado Novo was instituted after the Portuguese one, but it is a little bit different. Now, his de Novo, that is Vargas's de Novo, rather than Salazar's, was populist. It was about mobilization. It was about getting popular support. It was about getting people out in the streets to be uh, a sign of their support for the government. However, it was not about you know people's popular will being expressed in the streets. It was about controlled popular politics, controlled mass politics. So this is opposed to its complete suppression in the Salazar regime. Uh, Recall, for example, last week's episode about the Integralistas, uh, the uh, fascist movement in Brazil that was happening at precisely this time. The Estado Novo in Brazil was instituted in part in order to enable Vargas to suppress movements like this, in order to prevent there being a popular opposition to his power. The Estado Novo in Brazil resulted in a system of state-run development, state-run politics, and state-run popular presence in the Brazilian system. This meant that the Brazilian state was in the, in the business of building big factories. It was in the business of organizing people to come out into the streets in order to show their support for the government. It was in the business of organizing labor organizations. It was in the business of organizing student groups. It was in the business of doing all of that stuff. Uh, the Estado Novo was your one-stop shop for politics in Brazil. This is the Brazil that would eventually join against the Axis powers in World War II. Initially, like many dictatorships, quasi dictatorships, and sort of like right wing movements in the world, the Estado Novo of Brazil was curious about the Axis powers and sort of was settling up to them, you know, a little bit. Um, this was extremely common among illiberal regimes in the 1930s and 40s. Eventually, however, the Estado de Novo Vargas would turn against the Axis powers and join the United States and their allies against Germany after a massive wave of popular pressure, unplanned by the regime. And this popular pressure was exerted on Brazil uh, because of the sinking of several Brazilian ships by the Kriegsmarine, uh, by the German Navy. Now, they sunk these Brazilian ships because these Brazilian ships were engaged in trade with allied powers that Germany was already at war with. You know, we're talking the United States, we're talking the United Kingdom. In response to this, popular demand essentially required that Vargas declare war on Germany and thereby on Italy and Japan, and that he join the United States in this big hemispheric attempt to take over Europe. Um, and the Brazilian Military does, in fact, do this. You know, the Brazilian military sends an expeditionary force to Italy. They're one of the only other states in the Americas to actually send soldiers to Europe. Canada does this as well. The United States, of course. Mexico sends uh, some fighter pilots into the war, although those are primarily in the Pacific. Uh, so this means that Brazil is trying to present itself as a counterpart to the United States, potentially a a sister regime to the United States, uh, in order to oppose the Axis powers in the world. This, of course, does not exactly work. Brazil is snubbed in the creation of the United Nations. It had sort of expected a seat on the Security Council because it was one of the major belligerents in the war, you know, like China or the United Kingdom or France or the United States or the Soviet Union. This does not happen. And Brazil is relegated to one of the other countries that the United States essentially ignores after World War II as it turns its sights on the rebuilding of Europe. After the war, the popular pressure of the Brazilian people gets to be too much for Vargas's Estado Novo to maintain. Uh, unlike Salazar's regime, he is incapable of really suppressing this popular will. And so instead, it continues to explode and expand uh, to the point that a military government uh, starts to uh, plot uh, against him in the 1945. Uh, and he is ousted. he is ousted in a military coup in nineteen forty five However, Vargas later comes back after democracy returns to Brazil. Uh, he returns as a democratically elected president in nineteen fifty one uh, becoming one of the very few dictators who comes back as a just completely legitimately popularly elected president. And people really liked him this second time. however, uh some of the members of the Brazilian military did not like him uh, and he was uh going to be the target of another military coup in 1954. And rather than be ousted in this way, and rather than see that humiliation, he joins another extremely small club of historical figures, uh, a very small number of leaders who commit suicide while they're currently serving in their office as the head of state. So Vargas dies uh, in 1954 as the president of Brazil by self-inflicted gunshots. All right. That was 15 Minutes of Fascism, a sadly topical podcast covering the global rise of the radical right. I'm Dr. Craig Johnson, thanking Sleepy Kitty Arts and Sleepy Kitty Music for our intro, outro, and graphics. If you enjoyed the podcast, please like, share, and subscribe. Please leave a review on whatever it is you're listening to this on. If you really like the podcast, check out my Patreon at patreon.com 15 Minutes of Fascism. That's 15 Minutes of Fascism, all one word. You can also reach me at gmail uh, at 15 minutes of fascism at gmail.com on twitter at hist of the right that's h-i-s-t of the right and also fascism 15 on twitter all right thanks very much and i'll talk to you next week